The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. Russia has gained global legitimacy for hosting the World Cup, but this comes only months after seemingly being responsible for a chemical weapons attack on UK soil. The US president pledges personal friendship with foreign leaders one minute, but raises tariffs and borders the next. Is this a sign that we are entering a more multipolar world? George Galloway takes on Rana Mitter, Stephen King and Mary Ann Seacott in this intriguing debate about the spread of global power. Is it a gathering storm if China gains more power and China and Russia, maybe India, gain more power at the expense of America? Is this a storm is something we should on the whole be scared of? So is this something we should be scared of or is it something we should welcome? If the heresy is it's something we should welcome, I think we'll find this well represented by George Galloway on my right. Uh, and he described his 2012 return to office as the most sensational victory in British history. Um, Winston Churchill might have disagreed with that, I suppose. <laughs> Uh, Rana Mitter on my left is a uh, presenter of Radio 3's Free Thinking and a contributor to the FT, uh, but his main job is Professor of the History and Politics in Modern China at Oxford. And Stephen King here on my right is Global Chief Economist at HSBC, uh, a former columnist at The Independent, joined the club. Uh, and his most recent book is um, When the Money Runs Out, The End of Western Affluence. And I should have said at the beginning, my name's Marianne Seacart. The Gathering Storm. Uh, is an uh, apt title, given the weather outside. Uh, but I don't see it uh, globally as a gathering storm at all, as Marianne has uh, uh, correctly signaled. But the power is now in transformation. Uh, the United States' hard power is still uh, very hard, to be sure. Uh, but its soft power and its economic power is in decline relatively and uh, in fact, absolutely. Uh, and the new powers, the new poles uh, that uh, Marianne has mentioned, there are others though. Uh, uh, Turkey is potentially uh, a powerful pole. Uh, Iran is, South Africa is, and India, of course, is well on its way to being uh, a super power. And I think that will make the world uh, far safer because uh, a multipolar world is one in which people have to negotiate rather than reaching for their rockets and uh, striding out across the globe as they please. Uh, like the famous, uh, I just uh, interviewed Noam Chomsky, so I'm reminded of his recall of, uh, of the, the encounter between Alexander the Great 
and a pirate captain on the high seas in St. Augustine's City of God, in which uh, Alexander asks the pirate, how dare you terrorize these waters as a thief? And the pirate answers, how dare you terrorize the whole world? You, with your great navy, can call yourself an emperor and can call other men as you please. And that was the era to which we returned in the unipolar period. I welcome this new era. Uh, of course, that's not to endorse every uh, every aspect of these new powers. I have criticisms of actually all of them, uh, including the United States. But it will be a much safer and better world if the United Nations becomes a meaningful place again uh, with the powers, the new powers and the old, having to negotiate their way through uh, international difficulties. I think when we think about what these powers are, some of the very important points that George has made, some of which I would agree with entirely, I think do begin to look a little bit lacking in solidity. Let me tell you briefly what um, happened when I spoke to a friend of mine who's an economist. He's Chinese, based in China at quite a high-level uh, research institute. Um, secretly, he is, in fact, a great fan, in fact, of George W. Bush uh, and of evangelical Christianity, but he doesn't tend to mention this very much at Chinese Communist Party <laughs> meetings. However, when I spoke to him recently about China's prospects and where the economy is going, I was a bit impatient. He said to me, uh, look, Rana, I don't know why you're asking me these questions, because I can tell you, the Chinese system is going to collapse in five years from now. And I thought for a minute, I said, yes, but my friend, I remember I met you first 10 years ago, and you told me then that China was going to collapse in five years. And you know, it's five years beyond that. He thought again and said, yes, I do remember, Rana, that I did tell you that, but this time I am right. Now, <laughs> there is a danger, I think, in trying to project forward where we are now in a linear sort of way. But I think that nonetheless, I think what that you know, little story suggests is that actually, in a sense, arguing that things are going to change in a very obvious direction can be a bit of a mug's game. And China is a place which I think, when looked at closely, has so many flaws and so many difficulties that giving it greater status in the world is actually going to create more problems than I think it is solutions. Let's look in particular at the way in which China has started behaving as it moves towards the kind of multipolar world that George has been talking about. It is a country that, in the language of the playground, is Billy Nomates, or should that should be Jiangxi Nomates, I imagine. In other words, if you had to think of countries around the world which have a genuine close sense of alliance and affinity with China, you've got Cambodia, North maybe, Korea, North Korea, <laughs> maybe Pakistan. I mean, these might be guys you want to take with you to a knife fight, but in terms of bringing to the United Nations, this is not the posse that you I, want to be seen with. I thought Russia was their new best friend. Right. Let me just go into that very briefly for a second. Basically, Russia has a lot of oil and gas. China needs a lot of oil and gas. If they had been such good friends, I would like to know why Vladimir Putin had to sign the oil-gas $200 billion cooperation agreement at 4 o'clock in the morning. It suggests that this was uh, the product of some pretty hard-line bargaining between these two. When I spoke to a Chinese um, diplomat actually uh, a couple of weeks ago about this question, she just said, the thing is you have to remember that China has been, sorry, Russia has been trying to invade China for a lot longer than America has. And our <laughs> historical memories bring that to, uh, bring that to mind. Just to come back briefly to the, the point about the multipolar world, though. China has been entirely unsuccessful, it seems to me, in terms of creating a narrative around itself that people want to align to. The United States has allies of some standing. One can argue, and I think we will argue, about how real those alliances are. But Japan, 
Taiwan, South Korea, are all countries that have some real and formal affinity to an American-dominated order in East Asia. Even more bizarrely, to anyone who remembers the uh, the era of 30 or 40 years ago, Vietnam is now, by default, an American ally. In that kind of context, I simply think whether we think it's a good thing or a bad thing is almost irrelevant. The facts on the ground and the facts on the seas are that China has become the kind of careless, in some ways blundering power, unable to use and direct the kind of economic might that it's developed to develop genuine, stable, multilateral alliance in, is in Asia. Uh, well, first of all, I, I, my impression was that we had a rather multipolar world uh, back in about 1913, 1914. It didn't really end very happily, so I just raise that as a, Good point. a broad issue about multipolar worlds. Um, secondly, I, I think that uh, as far as China is concerned, um, the economics of China have advanced hugely relative to China's international political relations with the rest of the world. Its economic power is undoubted. If you look at um, China back in 1980, its uh, living standards were the equivalent of those in the US uh, in around about uh, 1770. Uh, by 2010, its living standards are up to those in the US in around 1940. This has been an epic transformation of an economy in a relatively short space of time. We've never seen anything quite like that for a, a, an economy with such a large population. The problem, I think, for China is this, that, as Rana, I think, indicated, um, there needs to be a very strong sense in China they have to provide connections with the rest of the world, particularly for raw materials. And it's not just Russia. Um, it's sub-Saharan Africa. Is Latin America and so on. And one of the big challenges that China has is that the infrastructure that currently exists uh, within those countries is relatively poor. Now, up until now, the Chinese have been mostly investing in things like US treasuries. Um, in the future, they've been investing, I think, increasingly in these countries. Um, but then the question is, how do they safeguard those investments in the future? And I'm reminded here of a, a little historical lesson, which is the rise of the British East India Company, which was ultimately, a, or originally, a commercial enterprise. Um, and uh, eventually became a, a key part of the growth of the British Empire, almost by accident rather than by design, um, in the sense that the British East, East, East India Company um, ended up with a mercenary army, which became eventually part of the British Army, uh, and that then led to Britain spreading its empire uh, far and wide. And my concern with China in one sense is that, yes, it, it makes these tremendous investments elsewhere, and it needs to do so, but in looking how to protect them um, it creates a bigger military force over the course of the next 10, 20, 30 years, and in the process challenges the U.S. Um, in terms of its presence elsewhere in the world, uh, whether across other parts of Asia or increasingly in parts of America's own backyard. I think about, for example, Latin America. I go back to the Monroe Doctrine of the 1820s. Uh, this was originally suggesting that the U.S. would uh, have control over Latin America against the interests of the Europeans. But when the Chinese start investing much more in Latin America, how does that doctrine work in terms of uh, America's relationship with China. So I think that as China grows, it hasn't worked out yet what its foreign policy should be. It's still very, very uncertain. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the process of growing, uh, it seems to me that it creates shock waves elsewhere in the world, which the rest of us haven't quite worked out how to deal with. George, you seem to be in favor of a move towards China having more power and the US less power. And yet you're talking about a country which allies itself with North Korea, with Iran, and, I mean, only this week actually vetoed a Security Council resolution saying that both sides in the Syrian conflict ought to be taken to the ICC for war crimes. So why would we well, want a country like that dominating the world? As DCI Hunt said in, uh, in Life on Mars, you say that as if it's a bad thing. 
<laughs> the, 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 you see, you look at the world from an entirely different standpoint uh, to me. I'm not an expert on China, as our two friends are. I don't make my living watching and criticizing China. But I know two things. First of all, that China isn't going to collapse in five years, though it's extremely worrying if such a high-ranking member of the Chinese establishment is regularly predicting that to you. In fact, China's progress is vaulting, and uh, the, the prospects for China are extremely rosy indeed. I would that we had such prospects as they do. And the second thing I know is that they know very well what their foreign policy is. And it is, as you've just described it, in a derogatory way. It is that we will not allow you to go around the world bombing people in the way that you did in that golden age, you imagine, we'll all be harking back to... But the French uh, weren't soon. suggesting we bomb <coughs> Syria. The French uh, well, were suggesting we should deal well, with human well, rights abuses. So that's the Chinese foreign policy. A rejection of the neocon warlike foreign policy that we have suffered through this unipolar world over this last uh, period. But, but it's, why, just that, it's just sorry, that you don't no, like it. No, 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 it's what, not that they don't have one, it's that you don't like what it. What I don't like is them preventing terrible war crimes and human rights abuses being investigated. Why is that but, a good thing? Because the war crimes are Both being sides. committed in a war supported by you, supported by your newspaper, fueled by the countries that you think are wonderful. And so the way to stop the war crimes in Syria is to stop the war in Syria. Stop fueling it. Stop sending Al-Qaeda fanatics George. into destroying Syria. Stop giving them money and guns. That's the George, we're giving Al-Qaeda money and guns. But George, if, right. if, if the Chinese are producing such a skilled form of diplomacy on the question of that part of the Islamic world, why just this week and many times in the last few months and years have there been so many attacks from the Muslim Uyghur population in the west of China on Chinese official sources? This doesn't suggest the kind of skill, diplomacy and engagement that you're talking well, about. I, I, I did say right at the beginning that I'm not here to support every uh, jot and tittle of the foreign policy. But you did say China had a consistent foreign policy. Had, but the Uyghurs, my dear, are not a foreign policy issue. They're a domestic policy issue. They have transnational links. Xinjiang is a province of China. And though some of you would quite like, if you'll forgive the pun, to make the Uyghur question and Xinjiang a chink in China's armor, it's not going to be allowed to be. China is one, and it will defend its borders, and it will defend its unity, however much it is the wish of Western liberals in Tibet or Islamists in Xinjiang or dreamers on the international level who imagine China is going to collapse, however much you like it. Let me give you a quote from Deng Xiaoping, who told Prince Charles, who Soto Voce gave him some advice on how to handle Hong Kong, which we took from China under bombardment because they wouldn't allow us to sell narcotic drugs in their country. He said to Prince Charles, the days when foreigners could tell China what to do are over. Hallelujah. Can, can, can I just... Um, George, one thing on Syria I think is important to, to note is that although China may have a particular view on Syria, I think Russia took the story on Syria in a very different way indeed. They took the view that um, the failure of the UK or the US to intervene in Syria was actually a significant sign of weakness of the US and the UK. 
that they actually lost their willingness to intervene in these kinds of foreign wars, which may or may not be a good thing. Uh, but the consequence was that I think Russia felt, as a consequence of that, uh, to be able to launch a much more assertive foreign policy than had been the case up until then. So in, in many ways, the intervention in Ukraine by Russia uh, was in re a reflection of the observation that the West was weaker than being perceived in the past. So again, this multipolar world actually seems to me to be rather an unstable rather than stable world. But the first intervention in Ukraine came not from Russia, but from the West. Russia is responding to Western intervention. Not military in intervention. Though. Well, it's every kind of intervention. Uh, according to Victoria Newland, who should know as she was the ambassador and is now at the State Department dealing with it, the United States <coughs> has put $5 billion into what they call democracy promotion in Ukraine. So that's intervention. I'm sorry. In the Maidan, uh, as we now know from the uh, taped telephone conversation, between the woman laughably described as the EU's foreign uh, minister, uh, who used to run a chip shop in Derbyshire, never been elected to anything in her life, Baroness Ashton. Uh, we know from that conversation between Baroness Ashton and the Estonian foreign minister that the people who were shooting snipers who were killing people in the Maidan were not as supposed from the previous regime in Ukraine but were the people that we are giving the $5 billion to in order to rip up yeah. the Ukrainian constitution, drive out the president, set fire to the presidency, and threaten the MPs with murder unless they change the constitution, which involved banning the Russian language. So Russia is responding to Western intervention in Ukraine, but you're right, there is a connection. We moved in Ukraine to punish Russia for having confounded Western policy in Syria. So, yes, uh, there are no uh, circumstances in which the world is entirely safe or entirely stable, but I argue it's better to have more than one big power in the world. And I just cannot see how such educated, uh, expensively educated men as these can't see that. Well, you were just... Sorry, sorry why, just... Why, why, why expensively educated? I went to my local state school. And what What's expensive? Uh... Your university was expensive, I know, because I paid for it. Well, George, well, you George, you've just uh, you've just attacked uh, Catherine Ashton for running a chip shop, education. so you have to make up your mind so, yeah. which side of those are necessarily going going to be there. But on that particular question, once again, isn't there an inconsistency? If you say that China, a country which is also multi-ethnic but historically has its own borders, which should be internationally respected, should be one, shouldn't that be the same for Ukraine as well, which is also well, internationally well, recognised as well, a single sovereign nation see, with territorial borders one of that Russia agreed as well as the uh, as the West? One of the absurdities of this discussion is you and me sitting on a chair in a church in Hei lecturing China on what it should do. There's an absurdity in that. You know that China will do everything that's necessary to keep its society together, to keep foreigners out who wish to interfere in its internal affairs. And I'm sorry, that's the end of the story. But no matter is, how is, much is, you chanta, or however many <coughs> Christian fundamentalists you discover in the Central Committee, your view on China is going to be confounded by China's strength. And I'm glad I'm... But the point about this is, is, is not so much that China has its own internal strength, but rather, where will China be in 10, 20, 30 years' time in its relations with the rest of the world? And that's the thing which I think is, is actually very uncertain at this stage, and which the Chinese themselves are very uncertain about. You're, you're talking about this as if the Chinese are self-contained um, in an economy which is, in one sense, uh, I don't know, um, a able to look after itself and complete autarky model. 
There's no doubt, though, that China is increasingly heavily engaged with what's going on elsewhere in the world. And I think they are uncertain as to how to play that engagement. Yeah. And I stress again that when you have this you know, huge investment in Latin America, sub-Saharan Africa, and so on, it means that China will have to look after those investments in the future. Uh, you can't claim that China is somehow a separate entity that doesn't relate to the rest of the world. It does. No, can, it's, I, can, it's, I, can, I, can I inject another point here, which is accountability. Now, foreign policy in democracies is determined, on the whole, by the people. They vote a government in, and if they don't like, if they don't, George, if they don't like the foreign policy the of that government, they vote. The yeah, well, let me finish because if they will you let me finish that if they don't like the foreign policy of that government, they will vote it out, which of course they did. Now in China, in and to a certain Russia? extent in Russia, which is a pretty rigged democracy, there is no accountability for foreign policy. What's the accountability? Tony Blair is still at large voted- and has earned 125 million yeah, but he's not- since he killed a million people But he's in not Iraq. running the country well, anymore. Well, you could have fooled me. Oh, come uh, on. Mrs. Thatcher is long dead, but she in a way is still running the country. Your, your, ideal, your ideal uh, or idealizing of uh, American and British democracy rightly provoked ribald laughter uh, in the hall. The imperfections of democracy in our countries uh, are mirrored, of course, in imperfections in democracy in other countries. But, but China's people, not even a but democracy. People, people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. And I'm afraid, as an employee of Rupert Murdoch... I am not an... Imp- I, I left seven years ago. Get your facts right, still George. still in my mind, you're in... Uh, <laughs> as a former, Many things are in your as mind, a, George. As a, as a former employee of Rupert Murdoch, and you as an employee of a bank doing oh, very good no. business. Yeah, no, yeah, it's terrible, isn't it? You're a banker. You're, that's what you are. You're a banker. And you're a politician. And, Which one's worse? I'm not yes. sure, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and I, I'm a politician. I'm a politician. I'm a politician who's out to hang the bankers, and I know. Are you threatening uh, me? Uh, 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 <laughs> metaphorically. Oh, right, yeah, okay. death threats. It's like the killing really of Tony nice. Blair. Death doesn't yes. actually take place. Yes, You're quite a brutal man, really, aren't you? So they're threatening everyone all the time. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, what, I, what I don't like is hypocrisy. You and your bank grow fat out of China, but you have nothing. I'm not that fat. I mean, I, I put on the weight. It's true. Nothing at all good to say about China. You're a hypocrite. That's what I'm here to say. I haven't said anything bad about China either. What are you talking about? You're talking nonsense. I have plenty of good things to say about China. In fact, I spend most of my time saying exactly that. I think one of the key points actually is that my point at the beginning is that I disagree completely with my friend inside the the top echelons of the the Chinese communist movement on the grounds that I don't think China's going to collapse. I think it's going to muddle along, actually, in a whole variety of ways. And one of the problems is that we tend to write apocalyptic stories about the world. The United States and China actually are very much guilty of this because it always has to either be a country that's going to take over the world or a country that's going to collapse or fall apart under the weight of its own contradictions. The reality that we see that the two sides are going to kind of rub along and gather along <clears> and probably take their own paths for quite some time to come, I think is less exciting but more realistic. I mean, here is my take on what I think China is going to do. I think it is not going to become a pluralist liberal democracy 
anytime soon, certainly not in the 10 to 15 years. I think it's also fair to say that broadly speaking, when you talk to ordinary Chinese people, and I don't know how much of your knowledge of China, George, comes from going to China and talking to Chinese people, but most of my evidence is at least empirically gathered from actually speaking to people in China itself and visiting There's the country. There's quite a lot of people in China. There are quite a lot of people in China. I may have talked to more of them than, than, than you, I have, to, uh, I have to say. Well, there are actually something like, I think, what is it, 70 uh, million Christian fundamentalists in China and growing in, uh, in numbers. Yeah. But within the wider population, it's still a smaller group. They tend to also be big business entrepreneurs, actually. They're the strongest capitalists of all in, uh, in China. But the point I'm making is that actually... I think on that, George is absolutely right. There is no great enthusiasm for the idea of a change to a liberal, pluralist, democratic system. Now, with the fact that, as you'll know, in, what, 10 days' time, we have the 25th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square uprising, a real people's movement, if there ever was one, actually, uh, George, the legacy of that is that that political event was tragic, but has not fundamentally changed the trajectory of where China has been going. China is, and will continue to be for some time to come, a country with a neoliberal economy, much more so, I think, than Western Europe these days, a profoundly non-democratic authoritarian political system, and one that essentially stays unified because it will continue to manage a steady rate of economic growth which keeps its people happy. Essentially, it's come up with the alternative to social democracy. It's a form of social dictatorship. That's not really a criticism or a compliment. It's merely a statement of, I think, the kind of middle path that China's likely to take for quite some time to come. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. So are we on the verge of a new world order? And if so, is it simply going to be a sort of muddled one, as yes. you say? Or, I mean, will, will, will China actually, in political terms, start to equal the US or even overtake the not, US? Not remotely. I and mean, this is one of the things that I think is a great compliment to China that we are talking about a country with a per capita GDP of 8,000 US dollars per year. With quite a, a lot of capita, though. Well, quite a lot of capita, but when you even add amongst 1.3 billion people, yeah. it's still a desperately poor country, which actually is much more concerned about its own internal politics. It's currently turning as its main engine of growth to domestic consumption. Now, if you want people to take more holidays, if you want people to buy more knickknacks, you know, plastic goods, whatever else it might be, the last thing you want to do is actually start a war. But at the same time, it means, and I think Stephen was getting at this, that your foreign policy is far more oriented to keeping the domestic economy going and smooth and stable than it is either towards foreign adventurism on the one hand or to finding some kind of big major new global role in terms of being, you know, the new America or the new Rome. The Chinese very much like the idea of being thought of in those terms. But when it comes to saying yes or no on Syria, on Nigeria, on the Middle East, on, you know, a whole variety of questions, you'll find that above all what they tend to do in the United Nations is simply to abstain. Even the veto isn't used that often. China's foreign policy talks a great deal, but it doesn't actually do anything very much because in the end it's still a country 
thinks about the domestic economy first. I, mean, I think you're, you're right that the chances are it's going to grow steadily over the next few years at a much faster rate than we're used to in the West. But there is nevertheless a fear uh, that things could go wrong. Um, and this process of trying to shift China away from an export-led mercantilist model, as was the case between, before 2007, uh, towards a model um, which is much more based on consumption, is one that's been very, very difficult to achieve so far. It's in lots of investment domestically, not a lot of consumption. And to get consumption working, uh, you have to create some kind of, of credit system. And the credit system means opening up your, your sort of capital account, your, your markets to the rest of the world, which other countries have tried to do, sometimes successfully and sometimes with uh, tremendous risk, as you saw with the Asian crisis back in the 1990s. So one big question, I think, is if things were to go wrong in China, um, how does the political system cope in a period of profound disappointment? Bear in mind, this is a country that's delivered 30, 40 years in a row of tremendous gains in living standards, where those who are still stuck in rural poverty um, have the hope and the expectation they'll come out of rural poverty within the next 10, 20 years. If there's a really big bump in the road, and no country is a, immune to this possibility, how does the political system cope? Now, one possibility is the political system does gradually evolve towards some kind of democratic model, uh, whether it's um, a Western model or more sort of Japanese, uh, Taiwanese, uh, Korean model. Uh, another possibility um, is that China is tempted down what you might describe as a nationalist uh, route, that actually nationalism is one way of binding your country together, um, effectively trying to blame other people for your own difficulties. And that, I think, is worrying both in the Asian region in terms of nationalism growing both in China and in Japan, as we discussed, I think, in the past. And it's also potentially worrying because Putin has demonstrated in one sense that nationalism works, at least in the short term. And I think it's another a threat to the idea of a stable, multipolar world. And are we going to see a more nationalist India now that Modi has won, do you think? Well, this is one of the things that makes one wonder about whether or not the multipolar world is actually going to work out or not. I mean, in an extremely wide-ranging and highly democratic election, India has decided to elect someone who has a view of the world which, whatever else you can say about it, is a real departure for India. There has been clearly a BJP prime minister before, uh, Vajpayee, back in the late 90s, early 2000s. But this is the first person who comes, I mean, George was just criticizing Catherine Ashton for her chip shop background. Well, of course, Mr. Modi used to sell tea um, in the street, and he started from that very, very kind of low background to rise to prime ministership. An amazing story in terms of the level of mobility that is possible in India. But he brings with him an ideology which essentially is inward-looking. It is about Hindutva. It is about the idea of some very kind of stylized version of Hinduism, which has always at its best been a very syncretic, very inclusive type of culture. You have to look only at the Emperor Akbar during the Mughal period, who combined Islam and Hinduism in a whole variety of creative ways, to see that this is not the action of someone who thinks that India realistically can play a global role. He does speak about it, but I don't see how putting forward that kind of very nationalist, very exclusively religious-defined <coughs> type of identity for a syncretic country like India can help to create that sort of multipolar world. I think it's entirely the wrong direction. In India in particular, you had the so-called Green Revolution in the 1970s, um, and then the economy was transformed in a significant way, delivering much faster growth rates. And it's all to do with engagement rather than separation. That's all I just noted. Well, can I make a brief point? Part of the problem is that essentially India and China, two of the big uh, powers of the region, don't really talk to each other in a sustained and engaged way. I was astounded to find out just a couple of years ago that the number of weekly flights, not daily, but weekly flights between New Delhi 
and Beijing, two major capitals in the Asian region, is just four per week. You can't even go daily. And that, you know, there's 27 a day between New York and London, for instance. And that suggests a lack of political engagement between these two giants, which is going to be a real stepping stone to overcome. So creative diplomacy on all sides in China, India, Pakistan, Iran was mentioned before as well, I think is going to be the next necessary stage before Asia can really punch its weight in that sense. I was going to say that one of the big problems I think that, that uh, China and India have is that um, you know, we think of 1962 as the year of the Cuban Missile Crisis. They think of 1962 as the border conflict between the two of them. And they haven't really kind of worked out how to forgive each other uh, for that border conflict, which the Chinese effectively won. Um, and life has been very difficult between the two countries since then. If you look at um, not just um, volumes of airplanes, but trade volumes uh, between different countries in the world, one of the biggest missed opportunities currently is trade between China and India. Mm. You know, both of them trade with other parts of the world. They've both been successful, but successful on their own rather than together. And if you wanted to have a real sort of revolution in terms of rising incomes, rising, rising living standards over the course of the next three or four decades, I would suggest that China and India are a pivotal part of that story. If they can open up their trade and linkages, uh, actually exploit sort of uh, you know, comparative advantages and so on and so forth. And also I would suggest that both countries uh, could hugely benefit from uh, helping to create what I call a sort of south-south trading route and capital flows route from Asia into Middle East, Sub-Saharan Africa, um, and Latin America. But again, there are difficulties here. Uh, the so-called string of pearls, which are ports that are constructed in Pakistan and Myanmar and Sri Lanka and Bangladesh, which have been funded largely through Chinese money, um, which uh, caused the Indians no end of, of uncertainty because, of course, the Chinese also have the right to put their warships, uh, if they were to build a few of them, uh, put their warships into those ports. And of course, the ports are there in part to protect uh, the journey of energy from the Middle East through to China. But that sort of story makes the relationship between China and India, I think, particularly fraught. George, do you think that a more multipolar world would become a more equal world? Um, not necessarily, no. Uh, I'm interested in it from the point of view of equilibrium in the world, but uh, the economic development within the countries, including the new uh, poles of, uh, of power and influence in the world, would be a matter for them. Uh, I take the old-fashioned view that it's not actually my business to tell other countries how they should run their countries. I'm more interested in, in how we run ours, and we're not doing that very well. So I always thought there was a slight foolishness in the preoccupation uh, of our political class in telling other countries how they should uh, run themselves when we are not doing a terribly good job uh, ourselves. So that. So that in question, 1939, you would have been a supporter of Neville Chamberlain, would you? No, no. Uh, I would have been the first in line to cut the throats of any. I'm a very violent man when it comes to <laughs> fascist Nazi occupation. But you shouldn't uh, have been telling the Germans uh, how to run their country. No, no uh, but Germany was trying to tell us how to run our country, and I reject that. Uh, just as uh, vehemently, well, and indeed they had they already... Weren't, they weren't in 1939. Well, they were beginning to develop a foreign policy which involved invading and dismembering other people's countries, ensuring the annihilation of uh, Jewish people and gay people and disabled people and communist people and so on in their own uh, country. I have a right but to... But that was their country. But that was their country, exactly. Yeah. No, uh, that's not my point. Uh, there are universal uh, human rights, I support oh. them. 
And one of those universal rights is for your people not to be annihilated in a holocaust. So what about we, human we, rights abuses we, in Russia and China? Well, Do they bother you? Uh, human rights abuses in Russia and China cannot remotely be compared unless you're Prince Charles. And uh, uh, you're, you're, I knew you had a lot of uh, class, Marianne, but I didn't think you were quite in Prince Charles's league. Uh, but <laughs> never claimed to be. I certainly well, <laughs> Prince Charles compared President Putin to Hitler. I think it's an obscene comparison uh, and an absurd one. And what so about Chairman I Mao? Uh, I won't, uh, well, Chairman how, how, Mao. How does he count? I mean, he, he was Mao responsible, responsible for the Great Famine and uh, yeah, people starving yeah, well, and uh, I'm not sure that millions of. of one man, but the, well, the China the you're describing, form, which is great leap the China you're out. describing, and your bank is growing fat upon was created by Chairman Mao. If, if there was no Chairman Mao, we wouldn't be having this discussion because China would not be a great economic and political power. But your friend Deng Xiaoping was the man who let HSBC back into China. Yeah, and I uh, think George. he let too many of them back in, uh, <laughs> if you want my honest uh, opinion. You can have too many bankers, as we in this country know. Stephen, because yeah, Stephen. the bankers dragged us to the abyss yeah. and over the edge. Just a bit of humility, uh, Stephen, is all we require from our bankers. Stephen. Just a bit of humility. Uh, I, I just think of myself as an economist. You can call me what you want. I don't really mind. Um, um, no, I was talking about your question about income, wealth, and inequality, yeah. and how this uh, works across different parts of the world. The problem here, again, is that there's a connection between countries, which I think you're ignoring. The connection is, and there's a sort of paradox of income and wealth and inequality around the world today, which is that uh, between countries, between nations, income and inequality has undoubtedly fallen largely because of the strength of China, the strength of India, the strength of other countries in the so-called emerging markets over the course of the last 20 or 30 years. But at the same time, income inequality within nations has risen significantly. This is something which we haven't really seen in the past. It's a big political topic for understandable reasons. But the question I have is, are the two, in some sense, connected? I think they are. And the connection is that one of the big revolutions that we've seen in the global economy over the last 30 or 40 years is the cross-border mobility of capital. Money moving across borders. I accept that bankers are partly responsible for this, of course. But money moving across borders, in many ways, creating opportunities for countries to grow more quickly than would otherwise be the case. If you say, well, what was the sort of single most important reform from Deng Xiaoping um, in the 1980s? It was opening up China for business with the rest of the world, not just relative to Mao, but relative to the China over the last four or 500 uh, previous years. It was an absolute um, revolution. Now, the problem with capital mobility is that capital goes often to where labor is relatively cheap. So lots of capital that might have been invested in the States, might have been invested in Europe, went to China. Um, and the consequence was that Chinese wages rose swiftly. There's lots of urbanization. China grew very quickly. But at the same time, the bargaining position of labor in the US and in the UK and Europe went down. Now, that's a, a very tricky issue for us to think about, because at the sovereign level, at the individual level, you get higher levels of income inequality. But at the global level, you end up with a bigger increase in living standards than we've seen ever before. And I think it's a really big contradiction, which politically is very difficult to deal with in terms of individual countries. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the reasons why, I mean, again, George makes a very central and very important point about why on earth should we be in any position to tell any other country how to run themselves. And actually, I don't think we are in a position to do that. But I do think we're in a position to have to care about how other countries run themselves. Just to stick with China for a moment. If some of the things that are going on in the East China Sea at the moment, where China's concern for non-interference and territorial sovereignty seems to be a little more flexible, certainly in terms of possession of islands 
placed equidistantly between Japan and China in those seas, which could trigger, not I think necessarily through intention, but through carelessness, a conflict between the second and third largest economies in the world. If that were to come off, if the whole of that area were to go off into flames, I think it would affect economies all across the world, including our own. And that is a subject, I think, of quite legitimate concern for all of us. Now, that doesn't mean we can be in a position to get on the phone and tell anyone in Beijing what, what to do, not least because, as you point out, they, they won't answer the, it. They wouldn't <laughs> take the call. But at the same time, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be thinking about ways in which our increasingly integrated world shouldn't try and avoid those sorts of, uh, of conflicts. And the fact is that some of that will involve having to engage with countries and telling them they cannot have completely autonomous choices about how they operate their foreign policy. Uh, I'd really like to thank you for coming, to Rana, to Stephen and to George for speaking, and uh, please show your appreciation. <laughs>